This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Alex Andrean. With me is the always well-informed Hannah Fern. Good morning, Hannah. How are you? Good morning, Alex. I'm well, thank you. Very good. Right, it's the last week of term and we have a lot to cover, <laughs> so let's get cracking. Let's start unusually from the end of the week, as there are three by-elections coming, which cast quite a long shadow. We have Selby and Ainsty in North Yorkshire, Somerton and Froome in Somerset, and Uxbridge and South Ryslip in Greater London. The Conservatives are briefing they will lose all of them, which makes me think they're lying. <laughs> what, what are the best predictions? Yes, there's a really nice stat doing the rounds, actually, which is that if he does lose all three of them, Sunak could be the first Prime Minister since Harold Wilson in 68 to lose three seats in by-elections on the same day. So resounding endorsement for him. But yes, I think you're right, actually. I think it's very likely that they will keep one, but it's probably going to be Selby. That's where the Johnson ally Nigel Adams stepped down, and it requires a much bigger swing of 18% to actually achieve a loss there Tories. So I think that's probably the one they'll hold and they're playing down the chances because they want to be able to show some good news, as you say. Uxbridge, obviously Johnson's former seat, very, very likely to go to Labour for obvious reasons. It's a massive snub on the nose, you know, to remaining Johnson supporters. It seals the fate of the government a little bit, I think. But it's also the local candidate there. He's a very, very experienced former Camden councillor. So he knows what he's doing in terms of winning elections and, and you know, mm. uh, speaking to local people. He's also, before he was in London, he's a, a, a local boy to Uxbridge. He grew up there and he's from a formerly homeless family. He really knows his stuff. He's a great choice for Labour. Although I have seen a lot of noise that the Conservatives are trying to turn the Uxbridge by-election to a sort of referendum of on, on Sadiq Khan's ultra-low emission zones, which is getting quite a bit of traction. That's a very clever tactic, because obviously in the sort of outer London suburbs, it's very, very unpopular policy. Yeah. So that it's a very, very clever idea that's the right thing for them to do. But I think it's still a stretch too far, really, to expect to actually win. OK, and then Somerton and Froome, what do we, what do we read in the tea leaves there? Could go Lib Dem, likely to. The local council results suggest very likely to. They were overwhelmingly switching to Lib Dem in the council election. So mm. it does indicate, especially given the, the kind of national mood of let's get the Tories out, you feel that you'd see exactly the same in the by-election results. So that's what we're expecting. Now, if the Tories manage to keep one of those three seats or more, 
they'll be able to say Labour should be winning all of those, they should be doing better, you know, mid-term people tend to kick a government, etc., etc. What's the fallout if they do lose all of them? Or does it depend on how badly they lose? I suppose it depends how badly. All three together does look like a resounding, or an echoing, I suppose, of the national mood. Because these are all over the country, of course. We've got Yorkshire, London, Somerset. It's it's a real kind of snapshot of the mood of the nation. So if all three go, it does feel like that would play well into Starmer's hands in his attempt to paint himself as Prime Minister in waiting uh, and his, his... Really, I, I really noticed that over the weekend, actually, Labour's attempts at electioneering rather than just positing, you know, who mm, they are and mm. where they are, have yeah, really yeah, stepped yeah. up. The Rachel Reeves videos, which are really all about her and her background, absolutely, that's about who we are as the next government. The team, yeah. Yes. I read a very interesting um, stat that Selby tends to basically change colour with the government of the day. Oh, interesting. So if they achieve that, yeah. Yeah, that it was, it's it's almost always when you look back, Labour, when there's a Labour government, Tory, when there's a Tory government. Um, so so that will be an interesting one to, to watch. Do you think the recess coming straight after those results, really on the day of those results, mm. because they, the Parliament doesn't sit on, on the Friday. Is that helpful to Sunak or unhelpful? I think it is, actually. I think it is, because it'll knock the, the kind of the momentum out of it slightly. That You know, everyone mm. disappears on their summer holidays. We know that people feel quite strongly about the length of recess, that they think it's, you know, why do MPs have such long breaks when everybody mm. else mm. is working all year round and so on. Of course, they are working for their constituents, but arguably, should they be making laws in the summer? So it falls into that sort of black hole that arrives around this time of year. And it does mean that um, it's not as easy for Starmer to make hay out of it. Yeah, and a lot of the political journalists, I think, go on holiday as well, which which is actually quite important. The only reason I'm asking is that traditionally, it was considered worse to have MPs in Westminster plotting with each other, as it were. <laughs> but it just feels like in the last few years, WhatsApp has changed all that. And we haven't really had a silly season for a, for a few years. It almost felt worse to have MPs in their constituencies, getting a nearful from their associations, then swapping notes over WhatsApp with each other. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the village is everywhere now, isn't it? You just carry it around in your pocket. So um, it does mean that you could be lying on a sun lounger in Tenerife and still be plotting, (laughs) you know, some terrible stab in the back. But actually, we're not, I don't think we're really talking about plots at this stage. Anyway, I think it's highly unlikely that the Tories are going to do anything about Sunak until the election. The most you can hope for is that somehow you end up with the election being brought forward because of the state of, you know, disarray within the party. But I just, Mm. that won't happen either. So it's really just a long game playing it out until the eventual Mm. end. It'll be interesting to see if we if we see a, a spate of people announcing they won't stand. Yes, um, and again. people announcing second jobs, their next job. Yeah. You know, people won't want to miss out, especially the minor Tories that who you, we might not talk about so much on this podcast. Backbenchers, they won't want to miss out on job opportunities that may start to come their way. Now, let's talk about Ben Wallace's resignation, Hannah. There is much more to this than meets the eye, I think, apart from the initial line, well, he's been doing it a long time and needs a rest, isn't there? 
yes, he's definitely fallen out quite catastrophically with some of the rest of the cabinet, specifically Braverman. And he's not been shy about admitting that, really, in in resigning. So he's quitting as defence. And, and, you know, he is generally quite a sensible bloke, apart from his recent embarrassment over saying that Zelensky should be um, more grateful for the support we're giving him, which seemed a strange remark, given his otherwise quite impressive history in defence. You know, he's, a, he's a real loss, actually. We don't often say this about the current government, but I think he is. And his fallout with Braverman is been, has become quite clear, given the words that he's used on leaving. And as a parting shot, he has denied her the use of 750 troops to cover immigration posts, which are sitting empty right now due to strikes and vacancies. So she was desperate for the extra support to keep the, the borders propped up. He said, absolutely not. He's basically showing her up. And he's mm. also said in an interview that, um, and this is a great quote, that he's done with frontline politics. So I think his exhaustion with the failures of the current cabinet are, are quite clear. Yeah. Although importantly, in the background, there is also, you know, the fact that he is probably Johnson's closest ally in government, has been for a very That's long right. time. That's right, yes. Second is the fact that um, he was up for the NATO general secretary position, and that was quashed by the states, which will have been a, a big disappointment. Yeah. And third, there's a rev- defence review coming this week, which is the scuttlebug is that it will recommend cutting forces by another 10,000, which is the expressly opposite from what Wallace wanted, especially in the current climate. Exactly. And this has been one of the main issues that he has clashed with um, his own party with over and over again. He's been absolutely clear that it's the wrong route. And yet... I mean, the, the, the talk is always about the finances and what we can afford and then, you know, couching that in this idea of what a modern armed forces looks like. But nevertheless, he's clear that it's just the wrong route. So, you know, he, yeah, he's he, he simply feels he can't go on. Now, it's also a very difficult week for stop the boats, right? Councils have just been successful in court judicially reviewing government decisions to open processing centres in their area. And there's an up, uh, there's an upcoming challenge on barges along similar lines as well. The Rwanda policy is still in the courts, with government planning to appeal the Court of Appeals decision in the Supreme Court. And most importantly, there is a danger that lords might ping-pong the illegal migration bill into recess. Will this be the big summer battle as the good weather encourages boat watchers like Farage down to the coast again? That's an important consideration, actually. And it's not just people like Farage. Everyone's got a phone. So it's, you know, those who feel very strongly who live on the coast are turning up as sort of amateur boat watchers and, you know, angry two-pence politicos. And it's it's, it's not good for the, for the debate about it because it simply aggravates the discussions. And as you said, crossings I mean, crossings did decrease at the beginning of the year, but once the good weather starts, um, and we know that the Mediterranean, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, that the, the weather in the Mediterranean is incredibly good at the moment, uh, or bad, depending on what you say about the climate mm. change. So, yes, we're going to see them rising over the next few weeks. 
ultimately, when you look at all the, these challenges, so whether you're talking about barges and or whether you're even talking about hotel accommodation as well for, um, you know, for use of uh, migrants, um, whichever element of this you're looking at, the plan is completely falling apart. Not only is it entirely devoid of morality, it's also dysfunctional. It simply isn't working legally, practically, uh, mm. and so on. And yes, we none of us would want to see this plan continuing but nevertheless a void is actually just as bad because it does open it up to to those who want to further aggravate the you know the racial elements of the uh, of the debate um, and it's a really terrible situation for us to be in and I think we can be proud that our legal systems are holding up well and nobody actually has been deported to Rwanda at all that's a great success for how our, our uh, you know legal system functions but you know, I, I think with no plan, it's a real issue. And that's it's one of the reasons why I think we need to be really concerned about the lack of a proper government over the next year. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, the government announced it would offer a pay settlement to public service uh, workers that went with the pay review body's recommendations last week, although the funding of it is patchy. Will it stop the strikes, do you think? Well, it doesn't look like it will for doctors. The BMA have been very, very sceptical. Unite aren't into it either. Interestingly, this announcement was made with um, NEU backing, so they did think at least they had the teachers on board. But actually, it looks like teachers generally aren't as enthusiastic as some of their union reps are. Um, and there's some question over whether or not the membership will, will vote to, to go for it. And don't forget, it's much more than pay, um, especially for doctors. This is about conditions. It's about culture. It's about the way public services have been allowed to wither for 15 years. And, you know, I don't think people are ready to back down yet. I think they want to see more of an understanding that they, how they've been treated is unacceptable and that there needs to be a, a sort of covenant for the future and they don't feel they have that yet. 
Mm. And and uh, weirdly, it has managed to also agitate NHS workers who already accepted via their Congress, although the nursing union rejected it, but via the Congress they accepted a, a 5% deal That's on right. the understanding this is as good as it could possibly get for you guys. And then a few weeks later, everyone else gets 6 or 6.5%, so they must feel really conned into that. We should also note there's another possible ping-pong on the strikes minimum service levels bill, um, by the way, coming on Tuesday this week, where again the Lords think some of the provisions of that bill are problematic in terms of international law, and and they're bouncing that back to the Commons. So that might be the second skirmish of the week with the Lords. There was also an, a, a National Audit Office report due to come today that was leaked over the weekend that suggests the 40 new hospitals target will also be missed quite spectacularly because obviously with inflation running away, all these public projects are becoming hugely more expensive. Yes. And suddenly they're being paused and they become ever more expensive because inflation is what it is. And it's quite a vicious cycle. Now, let's let's look at the opposition a little bit as well, because Starmer is also in a bit of a pickle over refusing to commit to various bits of spending, specifically the lifting of the two-child benefit cap caused quite a lot of animosity mm. um, yesterday when he confirmed on the Laura Kunzberg's show that uh, Labour does not plan to reverse that. What is the fuss about on this? Well, this is quite astonishing. So up until now, I'd been feeling very torn about Starmer's broken pledges uh, because I felt, well, of course, he has to say some of these things. It's too far out to make meaningless commitments that he may not be able to stick to. Let's judge him on what he actually does and so on. And I, I would still say I, I feel that you can guarantee that a Labour government is going to be much better for poorer households. So let's just wait and see how this all unfolds. But this two-child limit, I'm shocked, genuinely shocked. The reason there's such a fuss is that there is no evidence at all, no academic evidence, sociological evidence to defend keeping it. It costs far more than it saves. Plus, it's it's cruel. It's cruel. People can't always control how their household grows how, when, when they have children. Mm. There are so many reasons why it doesn't make any sense to have this arbitrary cap. What it does is it simply impoverishes children. And the later research demonstrates that it's done absolutely nothing to change the either work habits or relationship behaviours or anything else of anybody who's affected by it. The only thing that's changed is that children are being impoverished and it's made their lives worse. So why are they sticking to this? It's inhumane. It doesn't actually save any money. Um, it creates poverty, which we're trying to alleviate, surely, as a Labour government, in waiting, as it were. And I'm fine with a bit of the virtue signalling about what you must do in terms of keeping the public purse strings tight and all of that. But this seems to me sort of almost like a, I don't know, what you say, maybe like a lack of virtue signalling. What is going on? I can't yeah. believe it. I'm actually astonished. Um, I'm really disappointed. Now, there must be some calculation that this plays to the base that they need to get, which is the currently the, the swing seats and those, um, you know, people who are very worried about benefits and think that everybody that they live next to is absolutely 
scrounging off the state and so on, which obviously doesn't happen. But there is this enormous misapprehension about what um, benefits are and how they work and so on. And they and they understand that they need to not look like they're handing out soft cash to the country. But when the, the evidence is there that it, that it doesn't work, there can be no defence. I think what they assumed would happen is that if you limited the amount you could claim for having a larger family, people would simply have smaller families and then go to work. That's so, so naive in terms of understanding how people become out of work, workless families, multi-generational workless families, why people have more children. The assumptions baked into it were all wrong, but we've got so much evidence about that now. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the more likely Starmer becomes to win the next election, I think the more closely he will be scrutinised on specific policies, and I think Labour need to have better researched answers. This is not the than, one, yeah. Than the one he the had... One this weekend. I mean, it was quite notable, the change in tone between Laura Kunzberg interviewing him and then interviewing Kenny Badenoch, I think, was really quite notable mm. that she interviewed him as if he were already the Prime Minister with that kind of seriousness. Mm. And then the interview with with Kemi Badenoch was really on a much lighter note, which brings us neatly to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP, as it's called. Now, there was quite a lot of argy-bargy in this over the weekend. What is the Remainer Brexit division about on this? Is it a good deal? Is it a bad deal? Why are they... Why is everyone angry again? <laughs> well... Why indeed? But the reason that there's discussion about whether this is a worthwhile deal is that actually, if you dig into the detail, government already had free trade deals with almost all member nations in this alliance. So are we actually getting anything new here? Is this actually taking us forward? You know, maybe you, the buyer club model does work in terms of streamlining and some cost savings. But this is not the big breakthrough in international trade that the government will try to make it. Mm. And it's really interesting that they are already playing down its strengths. The line, it will be a good deal, and this is a quote, if we use it, is quite an interesting uh, statement because why are we doing this if we're not going to use it? It's a lot yes. of administration. It's a huge amount of, you know, just civil service person hours to actually make this happen if you're not going to make use of it. It really has sort of, I think, I, I you know, highlighted our Brexit exposure in that all we can manage to do is recreate the deals we sort of already had in a slightly different yeah. way. Interestingly, at the same time, the government is really talking down the chances of a US trade deal now. So of those who really were of the belief that this would be a brave new start in our special relationship post-Brexit, the truth is now very clear that's that was never going to happen. So it does feel like scrabbling around for, for whatever's left. Mm. And I've seen a lot of uh, uh, Brexiters upset at the fact that this isn't given the, the prominence it deserves, considering 
it covers a market of X trillion dollars, which a friend described, I think, very aptly as calling your weekly Tesco shop an 80 billion deal because that is Tesco's global turnover. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which I think yeah. Very, very neat. Now, um, let's move on to world news. Um, quickly. We have to talk about the crazy weather, not just in Europe, but all over the world. It seems like the last few doubters uh, about climate change are melting like the polar ice caps. Give us a roundup of what's going on. Yeah, so we've got the Europe situation. We're expecting plus 40 degrees in most of the Mediterranean this week, uh, during this week. Tuesday is set to be the the highest uh, temperatures, 43 expected in Italy on Tuesday. Brackets here, there's an election, a general election, a a snap one in Spain on Sunday in the middle of this heat wave. Sorry, continue. Yeah, interesting. The US is having its own heat wave with um, all kinds of um, social crises as a result, bits of public services and, and so on falling to bits because the heat's so high. We've also got uh, in China, the highest ever temperature recorded in China, 52 degrees at Sambao this weekend. And wow. that's um, that's really been noted as a, a significant shift because it's over one and a half degrees higher than ever recorded before. So it's not a, a point something of a degree yeah, yeah. increase. It's a very sudden upward shift. Um, so this is happening all over the globe uh, this week. Now, I do think that there's something to be said about domestically. It's a bit of a problem in terms of our own leadership on climate change globally. Sunak's been weaseling out of his responsibilities anyway. But the fact that we, by complete chance, happen to be having a particularly wet and cool July so far doesn't help that you know we are no longer on the global stage talking about this and yet we see that our near neighbors are being ravaged by the effects of climate change this summer and 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 we too will be soon next year i'm sure it's just we happen to be having a cool july nothing to do with anything other than chance that is so I do. I think that is a bit of a problem for the for the debate here in the UK. But globally, you're right. The the, the last doubters are are, are going, yeah. and we've also seen um, uh, the in terms of polar ice as well. There's been um, a, a couple of shifts there in in the last couple of weeks that are worth looking at. And huge wildfires in Canada. Um, also, a friend in Australia was telling me yesterday that the temperatures there is 23 degrees, even though it's the middle of winter for them. And I'm not so sure even about the the UK situation, actually, because just the the change from it being very, very hot to suddenly being being very autumn-like was also quite notably weird. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, and, And if we then get another spell where it suddenly gets very hot again, I think people will notice. They notice the extremes, the changes, basically. Mm. Now, finally, actors have joined writers in the biggest Hollywood strike in a generation, I think. Are we likely to see streaming giants yield, do you think? Or should we expect lots of animated series scripted by chat gpt <laughs> well this is what it's all about of course you know and it, what's interesting about this is that we're seeing very famous faces now involved there's people like brian cox and george clooney and margot robbie adding their names to this i think when you look at this from from afar 
Um, there's something about the sort of LA centricity of it that can feel like a load of lovies, but that really isn't the case. This is a global action. Uh, actors wherever wherever they are working, even though it's a, an, an American-based union that's uh, called the walkout, wherever they're working right across the globe, they are they are walking out, and we're seeing huge pickets in in uh, Hollywood. And, and this is obviously about two things. It's about how AI is being used in production. And it's also about how streaming is reducing pay. And why I think this is so important and one that we should all watch really carefully is because this is something that happens in all creative industries. You imagine when demand increases that wages go up, right? That's what that's mm, the old mm. rules. Is but you, so there's more content, there's more demand, there's more streaming. Surely, you know, this is an in-demand industry. No, it's simply what happens is the machine, the bit, the big businesses, they cheapen the output, and we see this in every creative industry. So this is a really, really important time for all creative industries, even though we're looking specifically at actors, writers and so on in drama at the moment. And, and actually the, the representation for this uh, union that's called the, the Large Walkout is, is one that represents other creative uh, sectors, such as the brand new industry that is influencers. So they're actually taking action too. And that's an interesting thing in terms of where we are uh, digitally and in terms of digital content creation. So yes, AI... Is the, is the big flashpoint. And can all these people, these great talents be reproduced by AI? Absolutely not. And I think we all know that. And if we don't fight against this as consumers, we're going to end up with constantly cheapened output that doesn't mm. satisfy our, our desire for art and culture. So it's an interesting one to watch. As a member of Equity, I can only applaud what you said and say that, yes, it, it's not about the big... Hollywood stars, although it's about them too. It is about the millions of cast and crew and writers who really work for fairly minimal wages all around the world, whose pay is determined in a sort of cascading pyramid from mm. what everyone else gets. Mm. And so um, I wish them well with that action. So that's it for today. Once more, I anoint our listeners fully prepped to start their week. If you enjoyed it, remember to tune in for another bunker tomorrow. So for as little as £3 a month, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon. You'll have our gratitude, you'll have lots of benefits and a shout out on this show. Here are some now. Thank you to Leximillion, John Levin and Ian McNeil. And thank you, Hannah. And thanks to you for listening to Start Your Week. Have a good one. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts.
Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern. The producers were Liam Tate and me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.